This episode of Brand Growth Heroes is supported by Strong Roots. Strong Roots believes food can be better for you and for the planet. Their end goal? To fix the freezer aisle for good. I love Strong Roots for so many reasons, but particularly because their exciting product innovation and inspired branding has revolutionised freezer aisles across the globe in only six years. So this season, with Strong Roots support, Brand Growth Heroes will continue to champion the founders of insurgent brands on their own scale-up journey. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. In the no and low alcohol category, Seedlip is arguably the original poster child of insurgent brands. Started on a garden table in 2016, it quickly became the world's number one distilled non-alcoholic brand and now sells across 49 countries and has undisclosed market sales value in the tens of millions. In this episode, founder Ben Branson talks to us about how he developed one of the ultimate disruptive brands, why he got into bed with Big Co so early on, and talks us through the disruptive way he approaches building culture, people, roles and teams. We also chat robot chefs, 47,000 plant-based ingredients, and we play our own version of Cards Against Humanity before he finally tells us about some big, exciting plans for Seedlip coming down the line. Ben Branson of Seedlip, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure. Do you know, when I wrote to you, I didn't think you were going to get back to me because you've got this kind of like mythical, mythical position in Food and Bev in the UK. And I just for some reason expected that you wouldn't. And you did. So thank you very much for responding. Absolutely did. Yeah, no. Do you know, so many people don't. It's really surprising. So many people don't actually respond when you write on LinkedIn and say, hey, will you come on the show? So I do appreciate it. It's really, it's really great to have you. Not at all. So listen, Seedlip is now the number one non-alcoholic spirit by value in the entire world. That is something else. You launched it in 2015 and you sold a majority stake to Diageo in 2019. How did you end up coming up with the idea of a non-alcoholic spirit? And, you know, lots of people would just stop there. How come you actually started making them yourselves? Tell us a little bit about that backstory. Well, firstly, I didn't set out to create a non-alcoholic spirit and I didn't set out to create a business and I didn't set out to, I don't know, give, try and give people a decent non-alcoholic option if they're not drinking alcohol for whatever reason. This was, this was sort of born out of naivety, passion, upbringing, um, curiosity, nothing really to do with the world of business, startups, money, drinks, anything. I come from a farming family and, uh, well, I come from a farming family and a design family. So it's a good mix. Um, and it's definitely Seedlip is, is the product of my upbringing in that sense. And, And I do genuinely feel like, yeah, I was meant to do Seedlip. However grandiose that kind of sounds when, I've got mum's side that have been farming for 320 years and I grew up in the countryside and I live in the countryside and I love the natural world. And then my dad's in the world of brand design and has been 
helping people bring to life brands all over the world for the last 40 years. So I, I kind of... Wow. Yeah. And so I've sat on the tractors and I've worked in design agencies and, you know, gazed at back bars and supermarket shelves and helped founders start brands and help reposition or redesign bigger brands. So you ended up in brand design yourself, didn't you? Yeah. So I, I kind of, you know, I school holidays sitting on tractors and stuff and then left school and did not want to do that. Um, and, you know, being up in Lincolnshire, sitting in a tractor on a farm at 18 years old was not the cool kind of interesting thing to do. What about traveling the world and working jobs and maybe getting into the design world? That was what I was more interested in doing. So that's what I did. And then I ended up you know, running my own design agency uh, back in kind of 2013. And, and that's when I also developed a bit of a, I don't know, fascination for what else I could grow in my garden that wasn't kind of just standard plants and just thought maybe we've lost and forgotten stuff. And maybe there's things out there from a flavor and a taste perspective that would be great to have a go at growing. I had a big garden. I lived in the woods. You know, it was, it was a great opportunity um, to just sort of flex a bit of Wikipedia clicking around and, and opening this kind of incredible box of, you know, herbs, spices, and edible plants that I'd not really ever come across. You know, I grew up learning about potatoes and turnips and, and barley and combining my love of history, my love of nature, and my, I don't know, just insatiable curiosity to kind of go, fuck, I want to learn more about all this stuff. I, I want to know stuff and grow stuff. And, oh, my God, I'm now looking at, thank God someone had scanned in a, a book from the 1600s called The Art of Distillation. And if you Google, if you're listening, if you Google The Art of Distillation PDF, you'll find what I found. And in it are 200 ingredients, which is brilliant. In it are recipes for herbal remedies using distillation as the method of extraction, using all these wonderful plants. And some of these recipes used alcohol and some of them didn't. And I was just kind of like, hey, look, I recognize some of these drawings. There's copper stills and distillation equipment. And I've got all these plants and here's some recipes. Oh, you can buy a copper still off the internet in the UK for like 50 quid. Just give us a go. Like, I like, you know, I've got a little, had a little kind of workshop at home. Uh, I learned how to do taxidermy about 12 years ago. I, you know, like trying to carve a spoon out of wood, bows and arrows as a kid, you know, making stuff and playing around and tearing. So I bought a little two and a half litre copper still and I just started playing around with, with herbs from the garden because I wanted to, because I wanted to see if I could do it. And I wanted to see what the process of taking a plant and capturing its character in liquid form I wanted to see what happened. Like watching a YouTube video was not enough. I wanted to sense it and, and feel it. And it's magical, you know, and, and I wanted to do it again. And I wanted to try a different herb and I wanted to look more into it. And that was like evenings, weekends, aimless, you know, didn't know where it was going, no ambition in mind. It was just the alchemy of it all. Yeah. 
And what were your first tinkerings with distillation and all these beautiful botanicals like? What do they taste like? Rosemary, mint, rosemary, thyme, stuff that I had quite well embedded at home growing in the garden. You know, I, I got far more adventurous as time went on and was playing around with you know, peppercorns and twigs and grass and pebbles and bark and anything I, anything I could kind of get my hands on. I, I just wanted to give a go. But that was, you know, I did that sort of, I don't know, three months, quite, quite fun, just experimenting, still nothing to do with drinks. And then I guess the dots started to join when I was out in London, drove to London for dinner, uh, nice restaurant in King's Cross, and obviously not drinking because I was driving and got served this just, excuse my language, fucking monstrosity of a drink that was pink and fruity and sweet and childish and treated me like an idiot and didn't go with the food and didn't fit the occasion and I couldn't finish it. it didn't, I didn't want another one. I just thought, why are the options so poor? And that wasn't the eureka moment, but it was the beginning of just joining the, making the connection, I guess, between my career and my experience with brands and design and my mum and the farm and that legacy. And obviously the pot still at home and all the ingredients that I was learning about. It was just sort of that, that fusion then kind of happened over the coming months. And it was like, right, I'm going to, this is going to be fun. I'm going to do something on the side. And I've got my design agency. We're quite busy. We had some nice clients. I'm going to do this on the side. I've never done my own brand. Uh, I can make the product, uh, maybe take it to a farmer's market. You know, it's not going to cost very much to do. I can do it in six months. Hey, I'm going to do five products. And fuck, I'm going to do them in two sizes actually as well. And I'll launch it and that will just be a bit of fun. So where did you launch them and what was the feedback? That didn't happen. What happened was I gradually fell, I guess, absolutely head over heels in love with the project to the point where I exited my design agency. I put my life savings into Seedlip and just wanted to spend every kind of waking moment working on it. And we ended up launching one product in one size in Selfridges, uh, two years later, having learned a hell of a lot, but with no real idea still of what was going to happen, but with a thousand bottles that I was really proud of. So is what you're saying that your first listing or your first sale was in Selfridges? Yes. Wow, we. I wanted to start at the top and I wanted to test whether I should keep going and whether I should bother. And this is, you know, you cast your mind back seven years. There was Bex Blue on a shelf. That was about it. Maybe, maybe some non-out wine products, but no one's talking about this. There were no drinks in menus. There was nothing conferences. There were no books, no searches. There was nothing. No hashtags. No hashtags, no influencers, no, none of this. I know, I know. So who had tried it up until this point? Not really anyone. I was quite... Precious. Yeah, I was quite precious, I guess. I, I didn't want to do any research. I'd done enough. I'd been in and done enough focus groups, uh, you know, with 
Domestos buyers and Dairy Lee mums and, you know, over the years to kind of just understand the pitfalls and, and potential problems of doing, you know, consumer research for something that, you know, what the hell's a non-alcoholic spirit? Why do I need it? So I, I went to see, I managed to get 15 minutes with the Selfridges buyer in the summer of 2015. And that was, that was everything. That was kind of like go, no go, depending on her feedback. And she ended up giving me an hour and wanted to, and took the exclusivity to, to kind of launch it as soon as I was ready. So that gave me a lot of confidence. She then introduced me to five top bartenders in London, very kindly and unprompted. And so I had five more acid tests, I guess, to go and taste with the trade. And what did they say? And that led to five more kind of meetings and, you know, and, and the snowball began. I just kind of went with it, I guess. And yeah, it kept building confidence in, hey, I'm going to make a thousand bottles. Like, and I think they might sell in five months and, and that would be a really good result. And I haven't got a team, but that's okay. Do you know what's really striking me as you're talking? It's this idea that I keep coming back to on these episodes, which is when the proposition is right, when you go and knock on those doors, you will get airtime. When it's right and when it's unique and when it answers a friction that is not currently being answered in the market. And people say all the time, you know, oh, but the buyers are too busy and they don't get back to me and stuff. They do when it's a product that answers a friction that is currently not being answered in the market. If it's just another product answering the same friction as somebody else, well, why would they really bother? So this is a perfect example of that. No one else was doing it. Yeah. And don't, don't get me wrong. Like I had plenty of, you know, I remember standing very clearly standing, you know, on the floors of Selfridges wine and spirits department, you know, which I did like solidly for the first three weeks and people getting angry that Seedlip existed. Oh, tell me. You know, they were angry. They were so angry that a product like this existed, that an inanimate object that they do not have to consume. Um, sadly, they were all the same kind of person. They're all middle-aged men. And this was a bit like maybe perhaps holding a mirror up to their own drinking behavior. But it's amazing when, <laughs> when someone says to you, I mean, who the fuck founded this? Whose stupid idea was this? Why are you working for this company? And you're kind of like, <laughs> I'm that idiot. Yeah, I'm that idiot who sold to Diageo four years later for I have no idea how much money. So screw you. <laughs> <laughs> I was, as much as I was, you know, more thin-skinned at the beginning, I was so kind of incredibly amazed that regardless of love or hate, there was love or hate. There was a, a, a real reaction and discussion uh, that, that I thought was, yeah, could be incredibly powerful to harness. They were really receptive and very supportive. And yeah, whether it was Selfridges or whether it was top bars and, and Michelin star restaurants, yeah, it was, it was an amazing what were they doing with your product? Because I always think this is really interesting. When you take those people who, you know, the bartenders, the top cocktail mixers, what did they start doing with your product that surprised you or that showed you the way? I remember 
meeting this guy in um, this young guy in New York. This was a few years after we launched, and um, we'd arranged to meet. He he was a pastry chef, but had launched a new business that fused kind of arts and and food, and was looking. You know, we were going to talk about a partnership. Anyway, I hadn't quite realised that he used to be the sort of head of pastry at Ellen Madison Park, you know, one of the best restaurants in the world. And he, he, came, he sat down and he just put this lollipop in front of me. And I was just like, what's going on? He's like, I made you a lollipop out of Seedlip Garden. And I was just like, oh, wow, that's what a, what a way to, to meet someone. Um, but these, I mean, there was, when you're working with, you know, top bartenders, it's sort of like they, they can make great drinks, right? But they weren't used to making great drinks with a non-alc spirit. So it was nice because we could collaborate and, and work together on what do you think works well? And, and obviously a, a simple seed lip and tonic is, is a really simple thing that people could have in their menus. Uh, but I played around with a few recipes. They then had their own ideas and it was it was nice. They, they, it wasn't kind of like, oh, I'm just going to put it in X because I know that works. So I would hope they would say it was a good learning experience for them as well because this was a, a new territory and a new way of thinking about uh, making a sure. cocktail without alcohol. But, yeah, they're, they're pro at what they do, which is, uh, yeah, it's good. It means you, you know that your business in, is in kind of good hands if you're working with top restaurateurs and top bartenders. So how did you go about getting distribution then? When did things start taking off and what did that mean for you and how many people you needed to come in and help you manage that growth? I didn't really do that well in maths at school, but yeah. And so I, I kind of was quite nervous about the, the financials and the forecasts and the commercial side of, of the business. But I, I remember a friend of mine, Jess, showed me, talked me through what a value chain was and showed me some stuff on Excel. And I was just like, I was, I'd already fell madly in love with PowerPoint, right? From the <laughs> kind of design agency days, but Excel took it to a whole nother level. So you're just a total geek, really. That's what we're really saying here. <laughs> I just, I think Excel is the coolest thing ever. It is. I loved the planning and I loved, you know, just learning how to do a PL and what a balance sheet was, how to manage cash. And it felt so empowering, partly because I was on my own, but also to be able to make decisions. And so I, I had a forecast that was a thousand bottles were going to sell in five months. And as far as I was concerned, that is how it was going to go. It was going to go as the spreadsheet said it was going to go. Those thousand bottles sold out in three weeks. Bearing in mind, it was taking about six weeks to make a batch. Um, I made another thousand bottles and they sold out in two and a half days. Oh my God. And this was just Selfridges and then the bars and restaurants that uh, we were getting into. It was hell. It was like, I just didn't expect it. I didn't have a team. You know, it was, I remember kind of hiring a white van, transit van, and putting 7,000 bottles in the back of it and driving it up with a friend of mine to a bottler in Lancashire and renting their line 
putting liquid in those 7,000 bottles and then not labeling them, driving them back down south and then having to label the 7,000 bottles. And that was the first like step up of scale. And that was in, you know, the beginning of 2016. And, you know, I got invited to Buckingham Palace and got, you know, Kate Moss was buying cases of Seedlip off Selfridge's website and wanted to meet for a two-hour one-to-one, show me how to make some non-alcoholic cocktails with Seedlip. And we got some good press and we heard from 100 countries in the first, you know, three months. It was, there was no easy, gentle way in it. Then I had to really wriggle of team investment, you know, uh, scale of production. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute, but I'm just really keen to understand what did you make of all of this response, this crazy welcoming by consumers and the press and the world, you know, this fanfare almost. That was saying something to you about what people needed. So what did they need? It told me that there was this incredibly powerful latent demand. And it it told me that, yeah, all the things that I thought, that all the trends of health, wellness, moderation, alcohol volumes declining, you know, teetotalism on the rise, social media and our appearance and what's cool now versus what was cool 10 years ago, all that kind of stuff was coming to light of like, yeah, this is, this is what it means. This, this is kind of, there is a space for great non-alcoholic options and, and people are, for the most part, you know, ready for that. Was it because the only alternatives at the time that were kind of offering inverted commas solution to that need for, you know, I'm not drinking at the moment or I'm driving and I want something that is, I'm going to have in a glass that's going to allow me to sip it gently and savour it. And the only thing that was offering a solution to that was kind of a schlur or a, a non-alcoholic wine or what else was there besides schlur? What are all those other 80s things? I mean, you've got, el- you know, elderflower cordial, orange juice. But there wasn't anything sophisticated in an alcoholic world. If you were to put these people, I can imagine when you go to these focus groups and they ask you to brainstorm, you know, who would be the friends of this brand? And everyone on a put a post-it note on the wall. What if this brand had friends? Who would they hang out with? You know, Schler, you know, would kind of hang out with like the Brat Pack from the 1980s, wouldn't they? All those boy Brat Pack films. And Elderflower would kind of fit in with your mother-in-law on a Sunday lunch, right? But there was nobody who was the non-alcoholic version of alcoholic spirits, was there? There wasn't anyone in that bunch. When we're doing the growth strategy program, we use this kind of magic formula to still haha, the consumer insight. And it's basically, I'm the kind of person who likes X, right? And I like to do Y, you know? And then you say, however, right? There has to be a however, and that's the friction. And then you say, I wish there was dot, dot, dot. So was the I wish there was in this case just I wish there was something grown up and sophisticated that lives in the alcohol world. That what else? Yeah, I feel good about drinking. It's sort of like observation, tension, need of, well, actually, I like alcohol, but I don't, sometimes I don't want to drink alcohol, but I still want to feel like I fit in and like I belong and, and like I'm part of and have a good time. But I don't want to just drink something that's plain or full of sugar or childish. Yeah. Or teenagery or grown up version of childish, like the beautiful cordials that are bottle green. I adore them. 
but I do serve them at Sunday lunch. Whereas something like your product or Mother Root, which I can give a big shout out to because I love that too. It's amazing. I have Mother Root every evening on ice with tonic or Seedlip, of course, because actually it fits that alcohol moment, whereas elderflower cordial doesn't for me. Yeah, it's different occasions, right? It does depend on mood and occasion and what you get with alcohol and cocktails is ritual and theatre and, and you know, just a, a different energy that's just less casual in that sense. And, and yeah, a bit, a bit more grown up. How important was price? You know, it's an expensive product if you think about it being a cordial, right? Which obviously it isn't because it's distilled, et cetera, et cetera. But imagine you didn't know that about it. So when you launched, did you launch at the price you're at now? And how important was price in terms of positioning the product in the Spirits Friendship Group? So, yeah, we're still $29.99 in Selfridges, um, even though we're now in you know, Waitrose and Sainsbury's and Tesco and Carter and, and now across, you know, 40 countries. You know, keeping price high has actually been the challenge as, as the category grows, as more people come in as the average price, average unit price of the category is, is sort of settled and come down a bit. It's not a cheap, you know, we work with nearly 18 different, you know, ingredients and sourcing those and finding the best, you know, allspice berries that come from Jamaica, for example. Uh, and then the processing required and the amount of raw material required. Yeah, that's not a cheap kind of, thing to make. I always kind of say to people, you know, if I could give you an amazing grown up, delicious, non-alc option every night of the week, and it costs you one pound 50 every time, does that sound like a good deal? And I always get the answer. Yes. Yeah. Because that's, there's 14 drinks in a bottle of seedlip and, you know, you add a mixer you add tonic as well. You are about £1.50, couple of quid. I think that's a good deal. It totally is. Versus what you spend on your Starbucks in the morning or, you know. Again, it's all about the frame, isn't it? The positioning of the product in a frame of it's an alternative to a spirit and an evening drink rather than it's another type of cordial. Yes. If you're the smart founder of a scaling grocery brand and you're inspired by what you learn on Brand Growth Heroes, why not check out our online business accelerator for founders who want to take their growth to the next level? The Growth Strategy Program is a six-week online learning course which offers a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. You can find out more by going to fionafitzconsulting.com and then clicking online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks to the support of Strong Roots, two places on the Growth Strategy Programme are up for grabs. Keep listening to the rest of the series over the next few months to find out how you could apply to win your place on the programme. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. So, okay, let's go back to your scaling then. So, Crazy growth at the beginning, you must be like, okay, shit, I'm going to have to find some resources to help me drive this. What did you do? Well, I cancelled my plan of my first hire was going to be a part-time intern in my house. Great. That's what Excel said. That's what Excel said. We probably went from within a year, 
there were probably 12 of us by the end of the first year. Diageo came on board in the summer of 2016 with a minority stake. So they took a minority stake in the business. Straight away, you weren't even selling a year at this point. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Okay. That's a brave decision. Was that a risky decision for you? Yes and no. I think uh, on the one hand, I was really clear that I didn't want to do this forever. I was really, I am still increasingly clear that I'm really good at the beginning and I'm not good at scale. You know, I'm, mm, I'm not yeah. good at big business. Seedlip's the biggest company I've ever worked for. But there are people out there like Diageo who are terrible at the beginning, but world-class at scale. And so I kind of, yeah, I did believe the more I learned about the drinks industry, yeah, the more kind of consolidated actually it, you, you see that it is, the pathway becomes or became clearer of needing a, a big strategic corporate that had, you know, a lot of credibility that could really, yeah, accelerate and, and kind of scale the business and had the funds. Has sales teams to go in and see this type of bar and this type of hotel and this type of restaurant and sales teams for wholesalers and sales teams for B2B and you name it. You know, if it was just you and your own, you might just have one sales function, right? And have to make choices. And then it would be all about, you know, who's going to catch up with you, right? Unless you got that scale really quickly. Yeah. And, and I... To Diageo's credit and to my team's credit, for the first you know, four years, Diageo just provided the funding. Okay. That was it. Not even the field sales team or the sales team, nothing? No. Wow. We built, yeah, we went and built the business and learned the model and opened the markets and yeah, drove the business forward. And Diageo played an incredible role of being fantastic support, but having the funds to then give us the freedom to go and get on with it. And I don't know if that would happen if we were alcohol, but certainly, you know, no one had a clue or a crystal ball on, on non-alcoholic spirits and what, how should they launch? How should they grow? What does good look like? What metrics are we measuring this on? So yeah, that, that was they gave us real fuel to, to kind of go and find our way. And probably I imagine that, you know, you're bringing in a big company like that early on, albeit with a minority stake. You have very many values around ingredients and craftsmanship and sustainability and regenerative agriculture. It gave you time to establish all of those as part of the brand essence. Boom, boom, another boom, boom. There's loads of boom, booms in this whole distilling section of the grocery category, isn't there? So by the time they actually became majority stakeholder, you'd already set up something that was so rooted in good that big food or big beverage is not going to be able to change that without an outcry. Tell us a little bit about those values and what goes into your product. And I believe that even now, some of the peas that you grow yourself go into the garden variant of your product. I do have peas tattooed in my knuckle. Oh, nice. For the first four years... We as a team, yeah, as a seedlip team, would go up to my farm and handpick the peas. And they're, you know, it's a lot of peas and it's hard graft, but they're 90-minute peas. So they've got to go from field to freezer uh, within 90 minutes to, to kind of lock in all that, that freshness. We couldn't 
it just wasn't sustainable to do it longer term. But we built Seedlip into, you know, I think we had 30, we got to 35 countries by August 2019, had a team of 75 people with three offices, one in, in Beaconsfield in, in Buckinghamshire, one in Sydney, uh, and one in LA with teams of people, you know, fully dedicated to Seedlip. And you're managing all of this. Yeah, with with my my team and and wonderful people like Emma Wikes, who is my GM, who kind of you know helps steer the ship, and with a fantastic team of young, mostly um, non kind of drinks industry team. You know, we were kind of we're a nature company that makes drinks, and and that's why we could hire a garden designer. That's why we could hire a young sales guy who did a PhD in cacao. Well, no sales experience, but Liam was so passionate and knowledgeable about a specific topic that learning more about botanicals and drinks and flavor was right up his alley and working in a team of people uh, who shared a united passion and belief in how wonderful the natural world is that just so happens to make drinks was an amazingly galvanizing kind of experience to watch, you know, young people come in their first jobs and hopefully set them up to have gone on to amazing jobs for their, their kind of next stage of their career. And actually when we got it wrong, HR and hiring wise, it was because we hired very experienced drinks industry people. Who wanted to do it the traditional way. Yeah, who knew a hell of a lot about a way to do it. And in the early days, I would recommend anybody starting a business or, or in the early stages to not be too seduced by the industry CVs because culturally these people didn't, it didn't work. It didn't fit and they knew one way and this wasn't, the seedlit way was not kind of just the same tried and, tried and traditional way. Um, of how you grow an alcohol brand. So yeah, our, our culture was really important. Finding the right people was really important. Making all the mistakes of hiring the wrong people was equally important. <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm, I'm really proud of the, of the culture that we built. We sent loads of the team on coaching courses. We built cross-department, cross-country coaching models of you know, a salesperson in the UK coaching a production person in the U S or, you know, it, it was a, it was amazing and it was fast. You know, we, we, we talked about doing things politely, properly and at pace, no internal email, you know, that was banned. No internal email. No internal email. Everything was done on Slack. Email was for customers and suppliers and partners. No WhatsApp group, you know, no Seedlip WhatsApp group, nothing like that. That was, WhatsApp's your personal life. So what did just having it on Slack and no email mean? It meant people could compartmentalize, I guess, a bit between their email inbox, their WhatsApp life and their personal world, and then the world of Slack. It meant, you know, it sort of self-organizes with Slack because you can have everything as a channel. So it meant emails didn't get lost and you didn't have to filter emails. Sure. I get it. 
So basically, you're really innovative, not only in, you know, your product development and your brand design, but actually in the way you approach everything, including your organizational structure, your people development, your ways of working, really quite disruptive on a number of fronts. I hope so. I mean, you know, I gave 20% of the business to the team. I signed up to Founders Pledge very early on, which if anybody's starting a business, I really recommend that you do. It is a binding agreement that says if you have a liquidity event, you will commit a percentage of that event to going into a donor advised fund, i.e. a kind of charity fund that you will then be in control of. And I'm so glad I did that because I now have a foundation that I can donate money to the right causes that fit with my and my family's values. And I'm really glad that I gave 20% of the business to the team because when people are saying, thank you, I've now got a deposit for my house. Thank you. I bought my fiance's engagement ring. You know, that's kind of really, that, that makes it to me really, really worth the while and the, and the commitment to, yeah, trying to sort of build people or help people with their careers. Totally. I mean, generosity is so important when you're working your backside off for somebody else who's growing their business, you know, and they're going to end up probably very wealthy over it. It is, I think, proper order and lovely that you would do that. I'm really glad to hear it. Certainly, I know a lot of people who've been on the other side of that. And it's pretty shitty when you've worked for years and years and years, breaking your back for somebody else's wealth, fame and fortune. So that's brilliant to hear, Ben. It's amazing. I could talk to you for hours about how you ran that business and maybe we will again in the future. We're talking to Sam Dennigan of Strong Roots, who's the sponsor of Brand Growth Heroes for the next six months. And we were talking about his sale of a part of the business to McCain's and the experience. What was your experience with then moving to selling the majority share to Diageo? And how does that all work now? Yeah, well, firstly, thanks, Sam, because I've got strong roots in my freezer. I'm very glad that you've done what you've done. What was it like? It was, on the one hand, it's part of the plan, right? It's what, yeah, it was the first step of kind of wanting to build a, a big global brand and, you know, lofty kind of ambitions of changing the way the world drinks and all that kind of good stuff. It was, it was the first step. So we knew it was coming. We, we wanted it to happen and it happened and that's great. And it's like, okay, well now, now comes the real test. And, and, uh, you know, I, I have a great relationship with Diageo, their kind of senior leadership team, have been unwavering in their support and commitment to non-alc, to people drinking less but better, to premiumization, you know, and they're, what they, FTSE 4. I mean, they're, a, you know, they're a massive business, right? And having them on WhatsApp. Amazing. Do they ever ask you to come and talk to their people about how you manage people or your organizational structures and development and ways of working and practices? Because they should, because it's really inspiring. <laughs> I think managing 28,000 people. No, but there's so much they could learn. You're being humble. There's so much they could learn. Honestly, I'm not talking about Diageo in general, but you know, I've worked for Nestle and lots of big companies and they could take so much from what you're talking about. I think there's ways and, you know, I've, no I've noticed now I've been working properly with them, you know, for the last two and a half years. There are ways, and, I, and I've said this to, to Ivan, you know, there are ways and projects 
and departments and teams where they could do it faster. You know, they could do it more efficiently, not company-wide, but, and they can move. They, I, I, you know, there are some things that have been happening where they can move incredibly quickly and you kind of, you know, it's, it's sort of standing or watching how a big company can be so agile. And then other times it's frustrating because they are a big company, but they, I cannot fault their commitment and support of non-ALK and their commitment for, you know, wanting to really lead and shape this category. I cannot fault that. It's different for me. Obviously, I'm not in control of the business now <laughs> in a good way. It's not my responsibility. I do not have the burden on my back, which feels incredibly liberating. It means that I can be more helpful, I think, to the business now in terms of my role, obviously, as the founder, in terms of innovation, new products, new projects, um, ensuring we keep, as we used to say, the salt and pepper in the middle of the table from a brand perspective and not kind of, yeah, just whether it's tone of voice, whether it's look and feel, whether it's styling, aesthetic direction, all that kind of stuff, just to make sure that we're not straying off that as sure. more people start to work on the business and it grows in more markets. But I, I don't know how much is in the bank account. I don't know when the next production run is. I'm not dealing with any HR issues. I don't have to raise any more money. That must be liberating. And you were saying earlier that you've got a couple of uh, new products in the pipeline later in the year, but you can't tell us anything about them. Yes, that is true. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the future, right? And I'm always interested. Uh, well, I'm especially interested at the moment in our category that I would argue has too many products. I'm not talking about brands, but too many products. And our strategy was not to launch lots of products. Our strategy has and, and will continue to be to stay just ahead of the trade to keep them excited, just and just ahead of the consumer so that whatever we do launch and whatever we do create really lands with real impact. And we're not, it's sort of like, we don't want to waste product and we don't want to waste nature and we don't want to kind of waste time of let's put another product out, let's put another product out, let's put another product out. And hoping kind of, you know, if we throw six at the wall, maybe one will stick. It's being very choiceful around the occasion, around the, you know, the audience, around the route to market, around the timing, the seasonality, all that kind of stuff to really, really do it properly. And we haven't launched a new product since 2018. You know, that's four years ago. We've launched new formats. We've put it in a seal and tonic in a can and we've launched smaller, smaller kind of gift size bottles, but we've done that more out of thinking about the consumer and thinking about oh, convenience and thinking about the occasion rather than just because we can. There are 47,000 edible plants in the world and there is no rule on what you can put in a non-alcoholic spirit from a flavor perspective. There are millions of products that we could launch that I've had ideas for that would be amazing. There's a good party game for this one, right? You know, that kind of citizens of humanity, it could be the non-drinking party game, right? Where you get all the cards of those 47,000 and you have to make 
the best cocktail and then everyone else has to name it. So like, okay, will we go for this now? Yes. I've got one. So my cards say pine needles, coal sprinklings, snow and reindeer. What's the name of my cocktail? Uh, good one. Pine needles, reindeer, snow. Life's not a beach. Life's not a beach. <laughs> I was waiting for some cheesy Santa Claus reference. You didn't give it to me. You didn't give it to me. Yeah, that's what I was trying to steer away from. <laughs> I'm way too cliched for you, Ben. <laughs> no, but honestly, I mean, I do think that's admirable. I'm only taking the mick, really, but I do think that's admirable. To be using the 47,000 edible plants in the world is really inspiring. We talked a lot on our pre-call about the future and what the future is going to look like. And we don't have a huge amount of time now, which I'm gutted about because we've already been on for almost an hour. I thought of you the other day because I have a whole lot of MSc students at the moment and they are calling in, dialing in every week from around the world. And the Japanese student who is sitting in the Japanese market had recorded a video for us of her recent virtual visit to a department store in Japan, which is now also totally virtual available as a ex- totally virtual experience. And you have an avatar of yourself and you walk up to the beauty counter and you speak to a real member of staff and it's their avatar. And they can give you a demonstration of a cream and they can, you know, it could be a whatever. And then you could get a sample sent to your house within an hour and you can purchase it if you like it. I mean, that is mad, right? What is your view on that? Is that really our future? And what does that mean for food and drink and for alcohol and non-alcoholic and and the world that we're going to find ourselves in five years time? I love that no one knows the answer to this, right? I, I think that when everybody's on the same level playing field of nobody can predict the future, I think that is is that to me anyway is such an exciting place to go in my brain of nobody knows. So what could it be? And, and what do I think it could be? Or where do I personally, everybody can have an opinion on this, which is, I think that's so rare, right? No, you don't need to be an expert in anything to be able to have your own prediction or view of what the future might hold. So I, I, love, I love this area. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not techie at all. The thought of you know, my kids being in metaverses and NFTs and all this kind of, you know, living in alternative worlds and Snoop Dogg buying real estate that doesn't exist. Is it all just a bit bonkers? I mean, is it all just a bit the emperor's wearing no clothes? Or is there merit in having some real estate in a virtual world? I just think that A, it dominates the marketing press, right? So it feels like the whole world is suddenly, like if I talk to my mom and ask her what an NFT is, right? She's not going to have a clue. And if I even tried to explain it to her, she's not going to have a clue. You know, it's a bit like when I go home to Lincolnshire, there's, you know, not the furthest end of the earth. And people say to me, oh, Ben, how's, you know, how's Seedlip going? I've came across this really amazing product that goes with, with Seedlip, Ben. I, I think it's new. Um, it's called, what's it called? Fever, fever fume? <laughs> oh, fever tree. Yeah, fever tree. That's it. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's like, that's been out for like nearly 15 years now. You know, I, I kind yeah. of feel like the marketing press is, is this one little window of 10,000 people in the world or whatever it is. 
And so I, I feel like the NFTs and the meta, it's going to be there, right? It's going to be there in the same way that people like going and throwing axes in London or they like heavy metal music. And there are millions of people who like riding Harley Davidson motorbikes. You know, is it going to take over and be how we all live? I don't think so. But, you know, I'm, I'm excited when I have thoughts like, I wonder if we'll have chefs and bartenders in 25 years. Not excited because I don't want that, but interested when there's robots being installed into restaurants all over the US that can cook an incredible steak perfectly every single time. But isn't that terrible? Isn't that an awful thought, you know? Do you think it is? I do. I do. I mean, I totally get it that if you were the restaurant owner and particularly if you were a wealthy, business savvy, entrepreneurial restaurant owner and you wanted that steak to be cooked exactly the same way, exactly the same time. So the consistency and quality and consistency and quality and cost savings and, you know, you knew how much waste this was going to be. It makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think if you break down the value of what a consumer is getting when they sit in a restaurant and you did that in a really scientific way. And actually, when I was working for Michelin Tires, they do this with tires. And you break it down into what percentage of that value can be attributed to the steak being cooked perfectly versus, you know, the consistency versus the fact that it was cooked by a real person versus the fact that it was delivered to my table by a real person versus the fact that the girl who delivered to my table in New York is from Ireland and my grandparents were from Ireland, you know, and they're also from Tipperary. And we had a lovely chat about that. And we left her an extra couple of bucks because of the Irish connection. What about the fact that you get milk from a nut or you go to a supermarket that's online? Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Okay. I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because you choose to go to a restaurant usually because you are looking for an experience. So that package of value, not that people are this rational that they're going to think all this through. But you don't see the chef. But you know the chef has cooked it because... Do you? Well, that's a good point. Okay. Wouldn't you know that he didn't cook it if you knew you were going to a restaurant that had robot chefs? But why Why does who cook... It, it, it's not... Johnny's cooked your... You know, you don't know who's in the kitchen when you go to a restaurant. I think it's implicit and I think even more so given that, I mean, are you watching The Great British Menu at the moment? I'm not, no. I love that show. I love that show. It's a great show. I, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I freaking love chefs. I love cooking. Oh, no, I totally get you. This is just, we've landed on this debate. There's zillions of them. It's nothing to do with whether we want this or don't want this. It's just a really good debate, isn't it? Yeah. I think it comes down to if we're debating about something where it's a rational job that has to be done for the consumer, you can take some of the human element out of it, right? Yeah. If it's a job that needs to be done and part of the value that's delivered to them is experience and therefore emotion and feelings, then I think the human element becomes more important, you know? So, well, that would be my comeback if you ask me on the robot chef. But do you think that, you know, we're not in person, right? Yeah. We're, we're talking through the medium of a... Totally. But you're not a robot. It's Ben, right? I'm not a robot, but we're hanging out virtually. Yeah. Yeah. And I am interested in when something new becomes normal. I know. I know. And only from my own experience, I will never buy anything online 
I said five years ago. Seedlip will never sell online, I said five years ago. You didn't, did you? I did. <laughs> we will not, you can't buy Seedlip from its website when we launched. Oh, that's funny. I will not buy anything online. Okay. And now you do. And now I very rarely go to a shop. I know, it's desperate, isn't it? But can I tell you something interesting on that? So I moved to the Isle of Man about four years ago and I grew up in Ireland where in the 80s, Ireland was in a really bad place. And as kids, we were constantly surrounded by very few marketing messages because companies didn't have marketing budgets. But one company that did was the Irish Food Board who I adore because besides the fact they're one of my biggest clients, every country in the world needs their version of the Irish Food Board because they do all of the capability development, insight, generation, promotion abroad of all Irish food industry. I mean, what country doesn't want that, right? And they do it to an excellent standard. But anyway, when I was growing up, I digress, there was this big national above the line campaign and through the line on all your packaging about buy Irish. And it was buy Irish, buy Irish, buy Irish, buy Irish, buy Irish, buy Irish. You can just see your woman with the tea from Father Ted, can't you? But honestly, it was beaten into us, or we would say it was baited into us growing up. You buy Irish, right? Didn't see that in the UK for my counterparts growing up. And all of a sudden, and I thought that was a real shame, I'm on the Isle of Man, I'm living here four years. And because we are an island and there's very little choice, a lot of the high street stores have left because of the pandemic. Like Topshop's gone, Miss Selfridges is gone. There's very little left. We just got M&S. There is a huge drive to support local. I was about to go onto Amazon and they still will, but then they'll say, shit, let me go and find something. Let me go and find a producer that actually does that on the island. You know, people are starting to get really, they really care about that. When's the local Isle of Man robot company launching? Oh, so what are they going to do? <laughs> they're going to, I am, you know what? I don't want anyone to lose their jobs, right? And I know that the biggest fear is, oh, robots are going to replace um, humans. But it's like, yeah, but... Look at the jobs that are available now versus the job, the kind of jobs that were available 20 years ago. And, and what do kids want to do now in the future versus what did they want to do or could they do 20 years ago? But I do feel like it's a bit like a vacuum in that the workforce will absorb and change. Oh, totally different ways. Great. Maybe we can do more making. You know, maybe we can do more things that robots can't do. Like whittling spoons. Exactly. Like whittling spoons. Which we are doing on Sunday, believe it or not. Are you? Great. Yeah, we are. We're having a spoon workshop in the house. Even better. Yeah, even better. Listen, Ben, I could talk to you all day about this stuff um, and I'm only sorry we didn't get to talk about it for longer. There's always a big question, which is what next? I still feel like I'm just getting started. You know, Seedlip, there's a lot of things coming down the line for Seedlip. We've got our range of aperitifs under Acorn as well. And there's some really, that's only available in the UK at the moment, but some big exciting plans there. Uh, I'm going to South by Southwest. When does this one come out? This one is in four weeks time. So what will that be? Mid to late March. Either at South by Southwest right now as this podcast is going out, which is my first visit to Texas and South by Southwest. Oh, Texas is supposed to be great for food. Is it Austin? Yes. Apparently the whole food store there is just incredible. So I'm excited about that. It's my first work trip in a couple of years. And then I've got, yeah, just more ideas, more still to do in non-alc. And more disruption in other industries, I hope, in the future. Maybe. 
Yeah, because like, you know, when you've disrupted something to this degree, it's going to be hard to just do renovation for the rest of your life. It is. Although I am, I know more than I did now, did then. And so I don't think I'd be quite so bold and deluded. And Well, do you know what? That might be a shame for the rest of us, Ben Branson. <laughs> that might be a shame for the rest of us, because if people like you stop being bold and deluded, then we're going to end up drinking the same crap and eating the same shit for the rest of our lives. So please do be bold and deluded again. Well, I would love to help anybody that is wanting to do something and they are new to it, bold, deluded, and be that, you know, in, in non-alcohol or whatever, I'm uh, I kind of having, having hopefully done it with my team. I'm, I, I'd be happy to talk to anybody. Well, you're going to get a flood of inboxes to your LinkedIn after the show. I know that. Bring it on. Well, good, because I think like me, probably most people just expected you kind of are this mythical figure. I know you didn't know this. I know you didn't know this because we talked about it in the pre-call, but you kind of are. Everyone just assumes that you're just too far out of reach, you know? But he's not, guys. <laughs> he wants you to say hi. Please, come at me. Come at me. All right, listen, I better go because I have abandoned my family and there's birthday dinners being cooked. It was so good to talk to you, especially to do all that debating at the end. I hope we stay in touch. And yeah, just let me know when you're doing anything exciting or interesting and we will chat again. Great, thank you. Thanks, Emil, Ben. Thanks, V. Thanks again to Strong Roots, Simple, real food 